You're listening to Being Well with BU, a Bournemouth University podcast. Hello, I'm your host Ella and I'm joined by my co-hosts and resident BU experts in all things mental health and well-being, Kerri-Ann Randall. Hello. And Karen Butters. Hi. Hello and welcome back to the third episode of Being Well with BU. I'm joined by Kerry and Karen again and this week we also have a special guest, Nico. She's an eating disorder specialist and that's what this podcast is going to focus on today. So Nico, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Yes, thanks so much for having me on today. I've been hearing some of your other podcasts have been really helpful and yeah, so basically I specialise in eating disorders I have um, got a degree in human nutrition and a degree in addictions counselling. So I also specialise in other parts of kind of um, health within society. I've been working for the Eating Disorders Service in Dorset, uh, but more recently with um, the eating disorders within the community. So uh, with the Priory Group as well. And I don't just do sit down therapy. I also try to get people to engage in healthy lifestyles. So through Resurface, which is one of the, I guess, associations that work with the university at Bournemouth. Yeah. So anything else you wanted to know from me, Ella? That's perfect. Thank you. And thank you so much for agreeing to be here. We're really looking forward to your input. So a bit of context as to why we're talking about food and eating disorders today. I think it's fair to say that anecdotally, all of us have seen things during the global pandemic of people struggling a bit more with their eating or people who already have eating disorders, um, perhaps struggling with being around their family and their family maybe scrutinizing their eating behavior more than they would normally. So we're going to talk about eating disorders generally. We're going to talk about what is and isn't normal. um, And we're going to talk about why the pandemic might have affected people, both in positive and negative ways when it comes to their eating and their relationship with food. So to kick things off, can we go back to basics and first talk about what eating disorders are and disordered eating generally is and what's normal? Yeah, so I guess disordered eating isn't really uh, normal eating. And I guess when we start to become concerned with people with eating disorders is when they start to express an over-concern with their weight and shape, um, an over-concern on their eating choices, which kind of lead into constant preoccupation or kind of a loss of concentration because they're always thinking about what they're eating, what they're eating, what they've eaten, what they're going to eat next. And as well as that is um, a difference between kind of dietary restriction and restraint. Um, So they try to cut certain foods out of their diets um, with the view to influence their weight and shape. Um, There's a huge array of eating disorders within society. One of the ones that we know as the more extreme ones are anorexia and bulimia because of how they kind of express themselves. Um, So through purging behaviors or extreme restriction that leads to an extreme loss in weight. But there's also a more unspoken about eating disorder, which is a majority of society, which is binge eating disorder as well. So that's when a lot of people have a loss of control over their over the, how much they eat um, due to kind of distorted thinking around how we should be controlling our food and our food intake as well. Um, we have 
in, in most of the public services, we'll see more of the extreme cases because of the, uh, the influence on physical health. So the risk will increase if they're not eating enough, which can lead to falls and also deterioration in health as well. Yeah. Um, how I guess people can start to notice people in society that have um, an eating disorder. So a lot of times in halls, I hear about a lot of the students that get concerned for their colleagues because they'll notice that maybe the colleague stops eating. But that's kind of the main thing. It's not just about the food. There's also the social withdrawal that happens as well. So a lot of times um, the person that you're concerned about might not leave their rooms because they're isolating, maybe because of a loss of energy and maybe not feeling like they can get out of bed that day. So that motivation is a, is a, is a main indicator for someone that you should be concerned about. Other people might um, find that they come to meal times, but then they find it hard to sit around during meal times because maybe they have behaviors, which means that they have to leave the table a bit sooner. So if you want to be there for somebody that you're concerned about, maybe kind of go for a walk with them after the meal as well. Um, and yeah, so other secretive behaviors can lead to people staying in their rooms and not coming out and being mo more socially withdrawn. So what would you classify as normal eating then, Nico? Because obviously eating disorders and disordered eating um, cover a huge spectrum of behaviour, but what's normal? Exactly. So normal eating, I guess, would be, uh, I wouldn't say that it is normal for anybody to not be concerned ever about anything that they eat. So carefree eating is almost like a myth in society. There is an element of normality in being concerned around your food being concerned about your weight and shape. And there's a lot of studies that show there is that kind of normal level within society. But normal eating is where actually you don't feel like what you've chosen to eat. Um, you don't feel like you have to base your self-worth on what you've eaten that day. So you don't have extreme um, rules for your food. So a lot of times unhealthy uh, views towards food might be kind of like that's bad food or good food or this is a cheat day and you'll eat an abnormal amount of food in one sitting. Normal eating is more where you can eat regularly. So you allow yourself to have breakfast, lunch and dinner and then also have a few snacks in between those meals throughout the day. What we want to do is kind of allow our metabolism to be kind of trustworthy of us to be able to feed our bodies. So we will eat every three to four hours and maybe if we find that we're hungrier one day or if we're doing more exercise one day, we allow ourselves or give ourselves the permission to eat. That would be kind of more normal. Um, another thing would be not aiming to restrict our food. So kind of punish ourselves by saying, oh, I've eaten too much chocolate today, so I'm not going to eat at all tomorrow. That's abnormal. But maybe someone might think, oh, I've been feeling a bit sluggish. Maybe my food choices might be an indicator of that maybe I'll have an extra plate of salad today or a few more green green leaves throughout the week. Brilliant. Thanks, Nico. That covers a whole range of things that we see. So by that criteria, are any diets that people follow, um, are diets normal or do diets fall under abnormal behaviour? I hold a strong view that no if you do not have a healthy relationship with food, you should not be trying to influence your food um, by extreme dieting. So a lot of studies have been released around the long-term benefits of diets. And over five years, there's no actual long-term benefits because what people are looking for are fast results. 
And I guess what's marketed in society is that if you eat less, if you exercise more, you'll look great. And that might work immediately within a week, but then you have to keep that going. And that's a very extreme way of living that you have to keep going and it's not sustainable. Um, So if anything, um, regular eating or having a normal lifestyle or a normal relationship with food is what will keep you healthy in the long term. Um, Dieting also looks at wanting to lose weight. Okay. And unless your doctor suggests it, for reasons such as, I guess, um, diabetes or surgery, I would say maybe manipulating your weight isn't really um, something that you should do on your own uh, without a medical professional. Can I ask, Nico, about the impact of lockdown on people who may not have that healthy relationship with food and, and how we may be able to sort of recognise that in friends and family, but also how we can support people to manage with with the restrictions and the the lack of control that lockdown brings with it? Hmm. So lockdown has worked in two ways with a lot of the university students that I've been working with. Um, Some have gone home and because that control is taken back by their family, they're able to eat regularly because they don't have the stress of thinking about food all the time. And that responsibility is just taken over by the parents. But then there's the other side of it where a lot of young people have been able to manipulate or control their food whilst at uni by maybe buying less because there's not as much money or eating extremely healthily so if they don't buy unhealthy food they won't have it usually at university and then at home they have five people living in the house with lots of different dietary um, requirements or preferences so that can also increase the stress for a lot of people when they go home and so a lot of parents either let the young person just take that control themselves and don't um, intervene. But obviously what we should look out for is if you're visibly noticing um, weight loss in the young person or if you you know that your child or your young person has had a history of um, extreme weight loss or anorexia or bulimia, then getting in touch with their GP to get that physical monitoring started um is gonna be really important unfortunately a lot of the gps are overworked at the moment so what i've noticed in the community at the moment is that we'll get the gp to make a an urgent referral to the the local eating disorders uh, service and then they can take over the physical monitoring for them as well um to help with that workload um on the nhs other things to look out for um is to also sit with each other during meal times so having that those meal times together and where everyone can see what's going on is really important as well because then the young person doesn't feel like they have to do it all on their own or when the cognitions or when the eating disorder gets too strong at least they have that support to distract them or to supervise them around their meal times um is there anything else that you're looking for carrie um I think it's um, it's really being able to support people in a lockdown environment where perhaps access to those services aren't as open or as accessible as they have been in the past. And I, and I take your point about the GP and, and referring to the GPs who may not all have the sort of capacity at the moment to, to have that contact with, with the young person. Um, but for some young people, um, there's no way they'd want to discuss their, their eating habits with a 
professional with a uh, perceived clinician at this point and, and maybe for those young people who the, the sort of lockdown has just heightened their relationship with food but not in a good way. Yeah definitely and I think it's also focusing on basics so whether that young person has been seen by the eating disorder service or by uh, an eating disorders professional before the basics are that you need to eat regularly um, throughout the day so if you don't eat regularly, um, so if your body is being starved, then you're more likely to physiologically respond to starvation in your body by getting obsessed by food because our animal instinct is to be fed. <laughs> so if you eat more often, you'll be less likely to struggle with those cognitions or with those thinking habits that keep the eating disorder strong, if that makes any sense. Um, other things is to also try to do things with balance. So the balance would be to try to extend to other areas of their lives. So rather than just focusing on food, just focusing on weight, maybe engaging in thing, in hobbies or um, other areas of their lives that they can try to improve. So whether that's hobbies or whatever you can do within the restrictions of um, staying at home at the moment, reading, um, university work, you never know. Um, other things like that. So these would be like distraction techniques? Yes, definitely. So distraction techniques like, so if the person has a tendency to binge eat, maybe they can engage in some mindful activities where not only whilst they're eating, but in general, they can start to kind of think about things more mindfully, which for me would just be usually stimulating your other senses. So rather than letting your mind rush to the future or rush to the to the past, you kind of think, okay, what am I smelling right now? What can I see? What can I touch, uh, hear, and taste as well? So slowing things down for yourself. Um, or some people, whilst eating, they might feel too overwhelmed by stimulating those senses. So they might get a coloring book and color something whilst eating or listen to a podcast. Um, to help distract from the fear of eating. I was just going to try and take us in a slightly different direction for a moment, if that's okay. Some of the um, earlier podcasts, Nico, we talked about accepting ourselves, that we're different, and to expect to be anxious and feel different during lockdown, and clearly some of the stresses that, that the pandemic has caused us. I've got a couple of points. I was interested in your comment about diets and normally them being attributed to how we look and how we present and clearly for many of us we've not presented any further than our dining room or our our, our screen or whatever it might be and so we've talked before about you know it being okay in that way just to um, be a bit more relaxed than in a normal workplace do you think that's going to have an impact on people's mindset around food so basically I'm not going into the workplace I'm at home I may have a partner here to see me. I may have friends via Zoom or something similar to this. Um, would that change someone's uh, relationship with food, maybe? Definitely. I think a lot of um, people might feel more motivated to make certain food choices because of either um, how their week is going to go. So if you're going into work, some people feel like they have a salad bar they can go to. So their food choice would be, oh, I might as well go have salad and be healthy um, and that's what I'm going to eat during the week but then at home there's not that motivation to kind of chop up all those vegetables to 
be creative with all those tastes and then eating can all of a sudden become quite boring and quite mundane. So I think there's that element of um, creativity that comes into um, eating when there's that lack of motivation. Um, so another thing about not leaving the house when thinking about different meals is not setting a routine. So I don't know about you guys, but for myself, it took me a few weeks to get into a new routine with lockdown because I was no longer leaving the house, trying to factor in the commute and trying to rush out the door first thing in the morning or kind of rush back so that I can get home at the end of the day. So all of a sudden I had this extra time that felt a bit too much. So I think what my, for myself and from a lot of colleagues and talking to clients as well has helped is to set um, kind of eating times in the day alongside time to prepare your food and also to enjoy your food and just to kind of a break with some fresh air afterwards um, that kind of thing and also eating in different parts of your home so if you're lucky enough you can eat on your dining room table or your couch or if you do have a window looking outside or somewhere where you can perch outside that's also makes a difference to kind of give yourself a change of environment as well um, and then also what other people have been doing is letting other people in the house cook, um, that kind of thing. So getting other people to prepare things so that can kind of push you into the realm of trying to impress other people for a little bit, but also try new things and make food a kind of a discussion amongst each other as well. Thanks for that. I've got a technical question. Um, yes. I probably know the answer, but it's, is our metabolism affected by stress? Hmm. So I would be able to, from what I know and what I've read and from some of my dietitian colleagues, yes, it does affect our metabolism. So stress does decrease our metabolism. Um, and that's because when we're in that fight or flight kind of response or um, when our body is alert, we kind of want to keep as much energy as possible for as long as possible. Um, in the short term, it can increase our metabolism, but long-term stress, it definitely decreases it. Can I ask um, Nico about, um, and again, it's probably more around the sort of, you know, how we can support people we're working with, our students, our colleagues around managing um, either established eating disorders or just this change in managing the, the potential new anxieties around eating, you know, particularly with um, the, the loss of control through through being in lockdown. Are, are there any um, good sort of apps or um organizations that you would recommend and, and I know that BEAT, the sort of eating disorders um, organization, uh, have really upped their resources, you know, focusing on the impact of lockdown, the impact of COVID on eating disorders and, and where that support can be sourced from. But um, I, I don't know whether there's any other sort of really good tips that you could give to listeners around where to go to get um, sound advice. That's a tough one because there's so much out there at the moment that it's really hard to kind of, um, let's see. So Beat definitely has a lot of groups that are going on at the moment and the good thing is that they're all virtual. So loads more people have access to them. Other things like um, on YouTube, there's a lot of recovery uh, channels that you can follow or um, tune into for disordered eating. And a lot of them have been coming up with kind of lockdown ideas as well. Um, especially with um, over-exercising becoming an issue in lockdown for those with disordered eating, but also um, not feeling like they're motivated to exercise in the general public. Let's see, what else is there? Let me have a look at my phone. <laughs> um, 
term. I think the risk is that there's, there's, as you say, there is a lot out there, and um, and sometimes that can feel quite overwhelming to to know what's the best resource, what's the best sort of support, and um, and any sort of um, way that you can help us navigate, you know, where to look and what to look for would be really helpful. Definitely, and I guess one of the main things is always getting to know your resources. So where does that kind of what is the background of the person? Um, delivering the information as well so make sure that it's not um, from an unreliable resource uh, but I can come up with some resources so there's the Centre for Clinical Interventions and on there there's a lot of information um, there to kind of talk about what's unhealthy exercise what's healthy exercise normal eating versus um, kind of disordered eating as well yeah I've noticed a little shift in language. Disordered eating, is that kind of the new softer use of terminology that is used now in clinical settings? Or Because for me, that, that actually opens it up to some of the earlier conversation, doesn't it? So it's not just about um, colleagues, students, staff who are struggling with, with uh, their food consumption um, maybe to a lesser degree, so to limiting it, but disordered eating would also pick up on the earlier conversation about maybe people who've had increased intake. So is that is that more acceptable now to, to talk about it in that way? Definitely. I think a lot of times it, what we've seen in a lot of clients or the general public is that their their problem is not worthy enough unless it's an eating disorder. That's the kind of worry that a lot of people have. But actually, in general, disordered eating leads to a lot of other health problems in society. So we just say disordered eating for anyone who might sometimes need a short-term intervention of kind of how to feed yourself properly and might not necessarily fit the criteria for an eating disorder. And am I right in thinking, Nico, that disordered eating can sometimes be a stepping stone to a full-blown clinical eating disorder that would be diagnosed as such? Yes, exactly. So someone who doesn't necessarily fit the criteria and actually um, once someone has an eating disorder, they don't always have an eating disorder. They might just fit that criteria for today. And sometimes just to do prevention work, um, we, we focus on their disordered eating. I think that's really helpful to, to think of it in, in those terms and particularly with our, you know, absolute drivers around early intervention and actually putting support in, putting some reassurance in, putting some uh, some form of action plan in for people to to work towards before their, you know, their disordered eating perhaps becomes a little bit more clinically um, risky. Definitely. And that's what we mainly focus on as practitioners is the first stage of any treatment for someone who might have an eating disorder or has an eating disorder will always be the physical or the physiological side of it, where we focus on just their eating and their physical risk. But that's why eating disorders are a very different mental health issue, because there is that whole physiological side and the physical aspect of it. So sometimes we might just work on the disordered eating and the physical stuff, and a lot of the, the cognitions dissipate and decrease, and it becomes a lot easier to manage. 
something you you mentioned earlier was around the importance of communication and you were talking about how you know sitting with people and, and talking with people about what would help um and, and actually that is something that's true for for everything at the moment the the importance of that, that increased importance of just communication just asking people you know how are you how can i help you with with your anxiety or what you're you're, you're worrying about at the moment um is is communication something that you think is particularly difficult for anyone who may have disordered eating or an eating disorder it can be quite difficult because a lot of times disordered eating is based around secrecy and feeling like nobody else knows how difficult food can be for you. Um, a lot of that's come up in mainstream stuff recently is that actually someone who has an eating disorder is actually thinking about food all the time. Um, so if someone sits down or a family sits down at a table and the person has been thinking about the fact that there'll be desserts and they know it's going to be chocolate today, for the last 48 hours, that person's anxiety is going to be higher and higher and higher up until the point they sit down and have their meal. And then when that food is put in front of them, their anxiety is even higher. So sometimes it just depends on your communication, your relationship with your um, loved one or friend. And you can either say, I know this is really difficult for you. And kind of just acknowledging how difficult it is for them. Uh, that can be really helpful. Or if you know that actually sometimes it doesn't really help saying anything at the time, you can sit with them afterwards and say, that was really well done. I noticed that you finished half of your um, piece of chocolate. Well done. It's always just about positive reinforcement and compassionate um, talking. It's not about ever kind of pointing out what has been done wrong because everything is so difficult when it comes to eating and food becomes a fearful situation. Um, but also when someone comes home it might be good for parents to set boundaries with their loved ones as well so kind of we need you to sit at the table with us or um, if someone has an issue with kind of finishing um, taking too long with their meals so we're going to finish this meal within a half an hour just setting time boundaries as well or we all get up at eight o'clock in the morning for breakfast um, depending on obviously your family's schedule that kind of thing so always just making sure that the the boundaries are known or set as soon as possible. That usually decreases the anxiety around food. You talked earlier about finding the balance, Nico, in, in terms of intake and exercise. And clearly, in the early weeks of lockdown, exercise was restricted somewhat. But now it's much more freer. We've spoken at length about the well-being benefits of, you know, exercise or not, you know, what's right for the person themselves, clearly not not advocating one one size fits all um do you use that as within a, a clinical discussion also with people clearly for some it might be over exercising and managing <clears throat> excuse me managing calories that way but for others it's about the balance what would you say that in terms of uh, the benefits of exercise from a, a disordered eating perspective it's really tough when it comes to eating disorders because it's on a case-by-case -case basis so if the person's bmi is too low um, so under 19.5 or they're purging or vomiting at the moment or if they're eating still really restricted amounts of food every day we would say definitely no exercise and um, if the person hasn't had their period for a long period of time and they're potentially um, more prone to osteopenia or osteoporosis we'd also need them to go to the doctor first to double check how their bone health is at the moment so that we avoid any further injury 
So there's that kind of element of know until we know more. There's, we need to make sure we have our physical monitoring um, and we know what those risk factors are. But kind of balancing it out a bit of what is that balance when you are eating enough food and when your body is healthy enough to do exercise. It's more about your relationship with your body and exercise. So why are you doing it? Um, are you doing it to compensate for calories that maybe you shouldn't be doing it at the moment because your body needs those calories, it needs that energy and that nourishment to function? Um, and then moving a bit further is are you exercising to are you an athlete or are you training for a marathon? So okay, are you eating enough to be able to have this increase in excess of exercise in your life? So maybe you'll eat a bit more on a day where you are training or a bit a bit more normally on a day where you aren't training. Um, but other people who are over-exercising, so think about what are the guidelines, really? So do you need to be doing intense exercise for that hour a day or however much it is now? It is more than that. Um, can you go for a brisk walk on some days and go through um, some nice gardens that and look at the flowers or um, what animals are around? Or can you go for a kind of a nice dip in the sea rather than swimming intensely that kind of thing so how can you enjoy movement rather than use it to to punish yourself and to get rid of those calories <laughs> I think um from a anecdotally from a staff perspective over the last few weeks clearly there's a certain amount of exercise in a in a normal working day and you know when we're when we're back on campus and we're and we're either traveling by public transport or or work, walking between various areas that 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 becomes the balance and then as you said earlier if your eating routine is also helped there because there are healthier choices and I think for some staff students too but I have more contact with staff it kind of crept up on them so that you know that that normal activity that normal daily um, uh, exertion wasn't there but they were still at work so they were they were kind of going through their functions, carrying out their role, contributing to the university, but they missed the fact that a lot of that was done at pace and on their feet. And now they weren't they weren't having that exercise. So over time, even the same input of food became troublesome because they weren't expending it. Um, clearly, that's different now. Mm -hmm. Exercise um, is a bit more freer now. But I think it, it, it has worried some that it's kind of crept up a little bit. Um, and if you were to read the media, clearly uh, present company accepted, you know, people are drinking more from an alcohol perspective. And so, you know, it's a, it's a media thing. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we all are, but it's but that's also clearly uh, calorific, um, enjoyable at mm -hmm. times, but also calorific. But I think it's that balance, isn't it? Definitely, it is that balance. And kind of thinking about um, drinking, during lockdown and the fact that yes it has a higher calorie content and if people are drinking more and exercising less then of course they are going to become a bit more preoccupied just by kind of doing the maths in their head as well but it's important to also see that drinking is not a replacement for your daily intake for your daily calories it is just something separate um so that's one of the things as well because a lot of people if they eat less during the day and then still drink um, they're lowering their metabolism because their body is not getting enough nourishment and enough energy from the foods that matter. Um, and uh, drinking will not help with that either because it also help uh, make them feel more sluggish the next day and then their motivation is lower, so they're less likely to do exercise and that um, vicious cycle just continues. 
What I would say is that um, thinking about working at home and not moving around physically, location-wise as much, is to add breaks into your day. So when you would have a coffee, go, do it in a different section of the house. I find just anecdotally as well, a lot of people are working in their living rooms, which then they're also eating in their living rooms, relaxing in their living rooms, and that becomes a bit stagnant, uh, not just kind of where you are wise, but just kind of uh, psychologically as well. So maybe factor in walking around, even if it's raining, factor walking out in the rain, pretend you're going to the shop at lunchtime or something like that. You would have done that um, at work. Um, and also maybe factor in with other people in your house if you're co-working or living with people that are also needing those breaks as well because you'll be motivating each other. Um, and then with drinking, it once again, it's also thinking about, okay, let's let's normalize things as well. What can we put in? What other areas of our lives can we work on in the evenings rather than um, drinking? So can we play a new game on the Nintendo Switch? Can we watch a new Netflix documentary? Can we um, do a, a, an extra long walk this evening? That kind of thing as well. Can we catch up with people? There's a lot of people doing quizzes with each other or catch-ups catch with their friends on uh, Zoom or FaceTime or whatever it is that everyone else is using at the moment. It's constantly about thinking, okay, I'm thinking too much about food right now. That's about 80% of my life. How can I make that less? What else can I add into my pie? Good use of pie there, Nico. Yeah, I'm good for the puns. <laughs> <laughs> That's really useful, Nico. Thank you. Um, do we as Bournemouth University have any way of helping people who are struggling with their eating, whether that be disordered um, eating or full-blown clinical eating disorders, short of directing people to their GP? Do we have anything at BU that can help? From a staff perspective, we would always recommend GP if a person's unwell due to disorders eating. But as an interim, we've got the employee assistance programme and they've got lots of fact sheets and information and, and, and helpful uh, resources as well as clearly they can talk to staff about any concerns they may have about their, their whole diet experience at the moment, really. Um, also, the Employee Assistance Programme, or the EAP as we call it, it's also for immediate family members. So picking up on some of the comments and earlier conversations about people in your home that you've got some concerns about, maybe if the communication channels are closed, it, it's an avenue for that parent or that carer or that, or that family member to talk it through with someone impartial and independent who might then be able to give advice. But um, yes, if it's health-related, always GP. The same for students, really. Um, the support services that we have for, you know, remotely so that uh, any student, wherever you're living, can, can be able to access at the moment is our wellbeing service, which is an NHS-run um, student wellbeing um, support. And they have a virtual drop-in every day between two and three. Uh, you can register online, um, submit your form, and then one of them will give you a call and, um, and actually have that conversation with you about what it is that's triggering your current mood and your current behaviours or, or your concerns um, and then signpost on to the specialist resources that they can access as well um, but yeah GP, GP first um, have that conversation with your GP but also look at some of the um, online support that's available following Nico's advice. Perfect does anyone have any final thoughts or anything else they want to say? Thanks Nico thanks for your input perfect. Thanks everybody that's great. 
Thank you for listening to Being Well with BU. You can find more Bournemouth University podcasts wherever you get your podcasts from, or for more information, help and support, visit us online at www.bournemouth.ac.uk.